Last year, an Oregon family received the worst delivery possible, an urn full of ashes and an accompanying death certificate, notifying them that their beloved 23-year-old son, Tyler John, was dead. He had been living in a recovery center and had not been in contact with his family for several years. Three months after hearing the news, officials contacted the family again. Tyler John was alive and actually ready to talk to his family on a video call. The newspaper outlet reporting the story called this bizarre story of resurrection an enormous mix-up. That's worth the price of admission right there. In Luke chapter 9, Herod, the phony king of Galilee, received a similar shock. It wasn't Tyler John who was back from the dead. It was a different John. It seemed like John the Baptist was back from the dead. And you know what? That's pretty bad news if you're the guy who killed him. In the opening chapters of this beautiful book, the Savior arrives and gets to work. Though kings and devils and doubters stand against him, what's clear is that he cannot be stopped. He heals the sick raises the dead, commands the very wind and waves, cast out demons by the thousands, teaches enormous crowds, gathers and commissions disciples. And so it was this unstoppable work and Jesus was very clearly sent from God and yet not everyone understood who Jesus really was. In fact, in the moment, almost no one understood who Jesus really was. Now, most of us here this morning, we come to these chapters knowing the rest of the story, not just the rest of this story, but the rest of the book, the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the completed word of God. We know that Jesus is the Messiah, God the Son, the God-man who came from heaven to make a way that human beings can be forgiven of their sins and receive everlasting life. But at the time, It wasn't so clear for most people. Even Jesus' own disciples struggled to apprehend his identity. Later in chapter 9, we see them talking about it. And Jesus says, hey, who do uh, people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And we see very few of them. In fact, only one of them is ready to commit an answer. And even that one who was pretty sure about who Jesus was, he wasn't always sure about who Jesus was. Luke chapter 9 highlights the fact that not only did people not know who Jesus was exactly, they were talking all about it. They couldn't escape the conversation about Jesus's identity. From the countryside to within palace walls, Jesus was being discussed. As this example here in Luke chapter nine, it's just such an interesting set of verses. It's it's kind of out of the blue. It's kind of a, a complete tilt of the camera. We've been following Jesus himself, following his disciples, seeing the things that they're doing from place to place, and suddenly the camera swivels around to show us, and now this. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Meanwhile, in the halls of power where people who don't care about God, who don't care about Jesus, who don't care about doing what's good, let's see what they have to say too. It's sort of startling that we're suddenly listening to Herod talk after the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And this interesting story, though, is shown in three of the four Gospels, where suddenly everything is put on pause so we can take a look at what this pagan king was thinking and what he had to say, where Herod is concerned and confused, talking about Jesus, thinking about the situation, confronted with this new reality, 
and forced to make a decision. It challenges all of us to consider who Jesus is and what that means, to pause for a moment, set aside distractions and desires and activities, preconceptions, and to acknowledge the reality of Jesus Christ, how we can know him and what difference that should make. So verse seven says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. Why don't you hold there for a moment? There are six Herods mentioned in the Bible. In fact, there were more Herods, but six mentioned in the New Testament. They were all from the same extended family. It was not a quality group, uh, not folks that you would want to have in your family tree, probably. The three we're most familiar with from the Gospels and the book of Acts were all killers. This one is called Herod the Tetrarch in Luke. He's also known as Herod Antipas. His father was Herod the Great. He's the one who killed the babies in Bethlehem after the birth of Jesus. But Herod Antipas ruled over a fourth of the region of Israel. That's what the word tetrarch means. He wasn't really a king, more like a governor. He was only allowed to exist as long as Rome's emperor said he could. Spoiler alert, not all of Rome's emperors were real happy with this guy, and he ended up uh, not staying in power but going into exile. The fact that he wasn't really a king didn't stop him from sort of cosplaying as a king. He even had a political party that supported him and propped up his rule and stroked his ego. They were called the Herodians, and we see them in the Gospels from time to time. Galilee was one of the regions that he was in charge of. That was his base of operations. There in Galilee, he built the city of Tiberias as his capital on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Herod was a man of great skill, a man of great talent, great success, great achievement. He was quite a builder like his dad, but he was also a man of great failure, vice and corruption, selfishness, evil. He threw wild drunken parties. At one point, he stole his brother's wife, who was also his niece, and married her. History tells us he was jealous of titles, always looking out for his own interests, Some historians record that around this time, he started stockpiling weapons for himself. And when the Roman emperor found out about it and said, I'm sorry, what are you doing? He said, oh, it's to defend your empire, of course. And that got him into some trouble. His life of selfish excess was interrupted in Luke 9. Suddenly, he couldn't escape hearing about this man named Jesus and the things he was doing. The Lord had just sent out the 12 with power to heal and to preach the kingdom of God. He sent the 12 out from village to village, place to place to to preach the kingdom. They were casting out demons, healing the sick and these sorts of things. And as a result, people throughout the nation started talking more and more about Jesus, more about what he was saying, more about what he was doing, more about what was going on. And those whispers turned into out loud conversations and Herod now was, was facing these things. These were no longer just you know, hearsay whispers of some backwood rabbi in, 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 who had a few admirers on some mountainside somewhere. No, this was a growing movement, one that could not be ignored, one unlike anything the world had ever seen. Jesus was a man who did impossible things. He was a man who made bold claims backed up with undeniable proofs, a man who said he was God. Jesus' influence wasn't only in, you know, small villages or out in the woods or up in hills. We learn that the wife of Herod's very own steward, someone who lived there day by day, she not only believed in Jesus, but she was a key financial supporter of his ministry. 
Later in Acts 13, we'll learn that one of Herod's close friends was also a believer of Jesus. And so this was impacting people all over the place, not just a few, not just a certain demographic, not just people of a certain background or socioeconomic status, but Jesus's work was reaching into all corners of this society. Everything that was going on there in verse seven can also be translated as all that was coming to pass. Throughout these verses, we we can notice an emphasis on the prophetic nature of Jesus's presence and ministry. The people having these conversations weren't only saying, can you believe what we just saw? Well, can you believe what's, what's happening? There was also a palpable sense that something supernatural was unfolding. There was something prophetic, something heavenly, something beyond the here and now that was going on in their midst. And that's still true of God's activity today. The Bible reveals that Jesus Christ is not only still alive, and he's not only still doing things in the lives of the people of the earth, he is accomplishing an eternal plan that will be completed in full, every part of it, a plan that covers every corner of this universe. And we discover this plan on the pages of Scripture, in God's Word. On those pages, we see the beginning, the middle, the end. We don't see every single aspect of God's plan. It's unfolding, and there's still mysteries to us, but we do see the broad strokes, the start, the end. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Here's what we planned in eternity past. Here's how we have worked out this plan through providence from this time till this time. Here's what's going to happen still in the future. If you're a Christian here today, it's always good to be reminded that God has an ongoing plan, a cosmic work that he is accomplishing. Your spiritual life, your life altogether is not just about your physical circumstances right now. Your life is not just about reactions to the problems that you face. Your relationship with God is not just about him helping you in your temporal situations. The Lord does have strength for today. He is mindful and cares about whatever situation you find yourself in presently, but there is a cosmic plan that he is unfolding. And God has invited you as a son or daughter to have a specific part in that plan. And he invites us to walk with him and discover what assignments and opportunities and position that he has set aside for us specifically in his plan. This is one of the incredible revelations we receive as Christians that God doesn't just sort of use you as an ant in the colony, not just a cog, not just a warm body, not just a faceless drone. He says, I have hand tailored a specific position and place in my cosmic eternal plan for you particularly to do. A special appointment, a special place, a special purpose. That's what he wants to do in your life, with your life. And he says, I'm inviting you to discover what that is and walk with me and and receive all of this provision and power and comfort and help so that you can do this handcrafted thing that I have for you specifically. Verse seven continues, Herod was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead, some that Elijah had appeared and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. We're gonna hear Herod's thoughts in the next verse, but for now, the focus is his confusion. He was perplexed. And it wasn't just that he wasn't sure what was going on. It wasn't just that he was puzzled. He was quite disturbed. One dictionary defines the word this way, perplexity amounting to despair. 
Another source says, perplexed means unable to find a way out. Herod was in trouble and he was upset about what was going on. Going on 20 years ago, a friend of mine asked me to be a groomsman in his wedding. And uh, it was in Fresno. The, the, the ceremony was in north part of Fresno. Reception was in deep downtown Fresno. Now, I lived in Fresno for four years, but we didn't go to downtown Fresno because it's downtown Fresno. So I wasn't very familiar with that, but I thought, it's fine. So we left the ceremony, and I was following another friend of mine who was also a groomsman, hitched my star to him. And uh, so we're following, and I'm not worried about it. I didn't have a smartphone at the time, right? So it's, it's 20 years ago. So we're driving. I assume my buddy knows where he's going, and then he takes kind of a weird turn, and I think, that's weird, and then he pulls over U-turns, and I think, uh-oh, I have no idea where we're going. I have no, you know, maps to get us there, so I think, well, I'll be okay as long as I can follow him. The very next red light, he goes through, and I'm, I'm lost at the light, right? And then what commences is about 40 minutes of me driving around in despair, perplexity amounting to despair, desperately unable to find a way out uh, and just getting more and more upset, more and more concerned. I'm looking at my watch and I say, well, the reception's starting just about now and I have no idea where I'm going. I call another friend. I say, hey, where am I supposed to go? I have no idea what's happening. And uh, he said, well, where, what street are you at? Where do you see this, this? And he's like, man, you are in so much trouble. You are so far from where you need to be. Okay. So I eventually get there like 40 minutes late and they've held the reception for me. And I just feel so sick and upset. And so uh, I was perplexed, amounting to despair. And, you know, I'm still friends with that, that groom, bless his heart. So, uh, so that's, that's what's going on with Herod, though. It isn't just, a, oh, I wonder who this guy is. And he is, he is upset. He's got a real problem on his hand. Rumors were flying. Maybe John the Baptist was back. Maybe this Nazarene was actually the prophet Elijah. For Jews, if he was Elijah, that would signal the end of the age, a major advance in God's plan. For Herod, whether this is John the Baptist or Elijah, I mean, that's, it's, one is not better than the other. He's in trouble either way. He knew what Elijah did to kings like Ahab, and Ahab was a king like Herod, and so he's in trouble. We know that the Herod's were paranoid and very worried about their status, keeping control of their pretend kingdom. I mean, remember how paranoid Herod the Great was when a few wise men from the east came and said, hey, where's the, the child born king of the Jews? The what? Why don't you tell me where he is? I wanna go worship him. And, and we see that paranoia, we see that concern. Did you notice that all of the rumors had a resurrection emphasis? Maybe an ancient prophet has risen, maybe Elijah is back, maybe John is raised from the dead. Now, their guesses weren't correct, but the reason they're talking about this, it was undeniable that Jesus' ministry had a supernatural life-from-death quality to it. He was not just a wonder worker. We see in the book of Acts, there's that interesting character, Simon the sorcerer, and we are told that he worked some wonders in, in, in the midst of the place that he was at. And whether he was a con man or had some demonic power, we're not sure, but that's not the character of Jesus's ministry. It was beyond a show of supernatural power. It was beyond just being able to conjure some healings or things like that. There was a life from death quality. In chapter eight of Luke, Jesus literally raised a girl from the dead. She wouldn't be the only one. But even beyond those particular miracles, we see that encounters with Jesus 
weren't just about shows of power. It weren't just about impressing people with his strength. His work wasn't just about making human life a little better in the here and now or providing short-term fixes to problems. God's plan was and still is to bring new life, raising a person up from death. Jesus said, if we wanna live forever in heaven, we must be born again. That's a phrase that he used. When a person is born again, we're made alive in Christ. We're pulled out of the jaws of death. Death no longer has a sting. The grave no longer has victory. And we're told that when we're born again, we're given a new heart right then and there, a new spirit, a new mind, a new perspective, new purpose, new spiritual provision. The resurrection power of God starts transforming us right away. His resurrection isn't only for the moment our physical bodies die or when he returns for us. We are raised up right when we're born again in purpose, raised up above earthly concerns. And then those who are born again will be raised physically out of the grave to live forever in the heavenly kingdom with God himself. But God is all about resurrection. Jesus was all about resurrection. When Christianity becomes diminished to the short-sighted level of how I feel or your best life right now or God, Christianity to me is about you making my circumstances better or easier or more comfortable. When Christianity shrinks to that level, then we have seriously underestimated the power of God, the plan of God, his purpose in saving us, what it is he actually wants to do in our lives. Christianity is about newness of life, resurrection, life over death, where we are set free from the old dead nature, set free from the old dead systems, the old dead snares of sin, the old dead concerns of this earth, and now we walk in newness of life, new heart, new mind, new perspective, new purpose. Herod was not comforted by Jesus's resurrection power. He was condemned by it. In verse nine, he says, I beheaded John, Herod said, but who is this that I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. It's a common trope, but I always love movie scenes where the hero returns after seemingly being killed and the villain is confounded. I think my favorite is Kung Fu Panda 2. (laughs) Poe returns and he's standing at the top of this big tall building and the villain sees him and Poe starts giving this monologue to him about how he's gonna be defeated and it's this big moving speech and then they cut back to the villain and it's so far away, the villain goes, what? And he didn't hear any of it. But here's Herod and someone says, I think John the Baptist is back. And we learn in Matthew and Mark that that, in the end, that's what he thought too. He was convinced and he was telling other people, I'm pretty sure John the Baptist is back. And he's flipped out. He's like, this is impossible. I beheaded this guy. What's going on? And he's worried about it because he knows that he's the villain and that the hero has returned. He knows that when he killed John the Baptist, he was murdering an innocent man, a righteous man. He was doing something altogether evil. He was paranoid because his guilt was exposed. See, before John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod, he had told Herod, hey, listen, specifically in regard to this thing that's going on with your brother's wife, who's your niece, you're in sin and you need to repent. And that made Herod quite angry, um, angry enough to kill somebody. But he was torn. On the one hand, he wanted to kill John. His wife wanted it too. But he was afraid the people wouldn't stand for it. 
John had a lot of followers. Everyone acknowledged that John was a good man, a holy man, a godly man. He also knew that John was righteous, and so he was afraid that if he actually killed him, you know, maybe God would do something to him. But he didn't want John to keep running his mouth from his perspective, and so to to try to shut John up, Herod threw him in prison. But then something very unexpected happened, if you follow the story. Herod started talking to John. Not just once, he started bringing John out of his cell on a regular basis to talk to him. And we're told in the Gospel of Mark that Herod even liked listening to John. How can that be? How can a man want to kill somebody and oppress them by throwing them in a dungeon, but at the same time feel compelled to talk with him about spiritual things? The answer is because the Holy Spirit was trying to save Herod the Tetrarch. The answer is that every single human being has eternity in their heart because God wants to draw them to himself, even despicable cads like Herod the Tetrarch. God said, I love that guy. And and the Holy Spirit's gonna go try to operate on his heart. It's gonna go knock on the door of his heart, hoping that he will open up and and let me come in and sup with him. It's It's an amazing demonstration of God's grace despite his wickedness, despite his guilt, despite his unworthiness, despite his yuckiness, all the things, God sent a true offer of peace to this man. More than that, God was willing to send his best people to go and try to negotiate peace, grace with him, try to give him the message that, hey, God loves you and wants to save you from your unworthiness, save you from your guilt. Even though Herod was terrible, God loved him. It's just another of many examples in the Bible of powerful but despicable people being loved by God and God reaching out to them. Think of Pharaoh in Joseph's time, Abimelech in Abraham's time, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius in Daniel's time, Jeroboam even. Jeroboam is the one that led 10 tribes of Israel into abject idolatry, but at the beginning, God spoke to Jeroboam personally and he said, if you'll follow me, I'm gonna make a dynasty out of you. I'm gonna do a great thing through you. And, And it was a genuine offer. There were many offers to many unworthy kings and many unworthy peasants and many unworthy people like you and I. Why? Because God loves us. God loves you. God loves me. God loved Herod the Great. He loves Herod the Tetrarch. God gives a genuine offer of peace to every person on planet Earth. He did for Herod. Did Herod take him up on the offer? We are told here at the end of verse 9, he wanted to see Jesus. Okay, so does that mean mean he was seeking the truth? Was he going to become like Nebuchadnezzar, the despicable man who became a believer? Sadly, the answer seems to be a very definite no based off of what else we know from Scripture. First of all, the Bible promises in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that if you seek God, you will find him. If you seek the Lord, you will find him. God does not hide from anyone who will seek him. And what a comforting, uh, gracious thing that is. Looking at the other evidence, we see that Herod had no real desire to learn about who Jesus actually was. He had no intention of surrendering to God, no intention of turning from his sin. What did he want to see? Why did he want to see them then? Well, maybe to try to figure out if a guy he murdered is back to exact his revenge. Maybe he was just curious to see a miracle work that will happen later in his life. 
but it wasn't for a genuine spiritual reason. He did not go to see Jesus like Nicodemus did. Herod could have. He didn't invite Jesus to his home like other civic leaders did or like he invited John the Baptist to come out of his cell and meet with him. He could have. He would have known that his steward's wife was a disciple and supporter of Jesus. He could have spoken to her plainly about the Lord. He didn't. He wasn't seeking the truth. He was scared of retribution for the things he had done. By chapter 13, we learn that Herod did want to kill Jesus. Some Herodians and Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, by the way, you should probably leave because Herod wants to kill you. And it was then that Jesus famously uh, named Herod that fox. And Jesus said to him, go tell that fox who thinks he's king, who thinks he has power, who thinks I should be afraid of him, go tell that fox that I've got real power and I'm not afraid of him and my work cannot be stopped. That would have been uh, an interesting message to carry back. Herod was a fox, a jackal, a thief and destroyer out for his own interests. He wanted to hide his guilt for killing John. He wanted to maintain his sorry little throne. He wanted to hold on to his power as long as he possibly could. He didn't want to find Jesus. He just wanted to find a way out of the conviction he was feeling, a reason to avoid the problem in his heart. What did he say? He said, I beheaded John, recognizing that he had done this wicked thing. John had done nothing wrong other than point out what was true in Herod's life, that he was a sinner, that he could repent and be forgiven by God. He said, how about I add to that sin by beheading you for no reason at this weird drunken party? Herod would finally get to see Jesus one day. In fact, it would be on the day of our Lord's crucifixion. Pontius Pilate at one point sent Jesus over to Herod, and we see Herod got all excited because he thought, oh, I'm finally gonna see the Nazarene perform a wonder, some miracle. We see by then, he was no longer perplexed. He was no longer paranoid. He was no longer worried about who Jesus might be. He's completely numb to those things. He just wanted to see a show. He thought there was gonna be a great performance that day. And we see in that sad scene that he keeps goading Jesus, talking to Jesus, asking questions of Jesus. Not genuinely, he wanted to see a wonder worked, but Jesus refuses to speak to them. He remained silent the whole time. And we see that as a, as a response, Herod mocked Jesus and his soldiers mocked them and abused Jesus. Why was Jesus silent? Didn't Jesus love Herod? He did. But at this point, it was too late. You see, Jesus had already preached. Jesus had already spoken. Jesus had already sent messages to Herod. And by now, there was nothing left to say to the man who refused over and over and over again to respond to what God had said to him, to respond to what God had revealed to him, to respond to God's ovations of peace toward him. And this is a, a chilling warning that we receive in the Bible for the unbeliever, that the more we reject God's gospel, the more we reject his offers of salvation, his offers of peace and reconciliation, the harder our hearts become, the more numb we become to the truth. And it can get to a point in a person's life where you could be face to face with Jesus Christ himself and feel nothing and decide, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm not gonna become Jesus's friend, I'm gonna become Pontius Pilate's friend. That's what happened that day. 
Can you imagine being face-to-face with Jesus Christ and your result is that you become friends with Pontius Pilate? That shows the, the depths of Herod's numbness by that time, that he was absolutely immobilized, trapped in his sin because he would not yield to the, to the, the Holy Spirit all of those years before. Now, Jesus was silent to Herod on the day of his crucifixion, but if you're not a Christian here today, Jesus still has something to say to you. He's not silent for you. How do we know that? Well, that's why we're given his word. It's his living word that God gives to reveal himself, to speak the truth to us. That's why God allows us to eavesdrop on this palace conversation. He's speaking to each of us, especially this morning to you non-believers, speaking through his word. He wants to communicate to all of us today truth about who he is, explaining to us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He wants to communicate our need for salvation and the way by which we can be rescued from sin and from death. And he wants to communicate whether we're kings or peasants, rulers or servants, country folks, city folk, it doesn't matter. He wants to speak to everybody. What a beautiful picture. He's speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to the wife of the steward. He's speaking to the friend of the king. He's speaking to the king himself. If you're not a Christian, you may have a lot of questions or concerns or things going on, but the, the, the primary message that God wants to deliver to you this morning is you are a hell doomed sinner who needs to be rescued from death, rescued from the guilt of your sin. You may think of yourself as a king or queen. Herod did. It didn't make it actually true. You may enjoy great success or achievement. Herod did, but it could all be taken away by someone else. It certainly was going to be taken away by the grave. You may think religion is for suckers, but here's the reality. The real king the king of everything, the king of heaven and earth, he holds your life in his hands. And he has pronounced you guilty of sin against his law. And the penalty for that sin is eternal death. And success won't save you. Making political moves to insulate yourself won't save you. Stockpiling something won't save you. Wealth won't save you. Good deeds can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And he wants to save you. He sent you this word, this message in the Bible so that you could understand that there is a way to be saved, a way to be forgiven, a way to come out of the grave and live forever and ever. In Acts 4, we read this, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven to people by which we must be saved. Jesus and only Jesus. You need to reckon with the question that perplexed Herod, who is Jesus? Do you believe he is who the Bible says he is? Do you even know what the Bible really says about him? A lot of people mistake Jesus' identity or just don't really know what the Bible says. They have preconceptions or they've heard rumors or you know, they've always assumed certain things. Some people think of Jesus as make-believe. He's not. He's altogether real. He's alive right now. He's the king of everything. He is busy unfolding his eternal plan to establish his kingdom forever and ever. You can have a part in it. Some think of Jesus as a good teacher, the founder of a new religion. It's just like people in this passage talked about him. Is he John? Is he Elijah? Is he this? Is he that? Lots of talk, not a lot of definitive answers in their conversations. 
The truth is, John the Baptist, he was just the herald. Jesus is the king who was and is and is to come. John said of Jesus, oh, I'm not even worthy to unstrap that guy's sandals. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Elijah was a prophet of God. He lived for a brief time, gave some messages from heaven to people. Jesus is God himself. Jesus was there with Elijah. We see sometimes the angel of the Lord with Elijah. He was the power behind the prophet. He empowered Elijah, directed him. It was him Elijah was speaking for. The ancient prophets of Israel, they all had a dramatic place in Israel's history, but what did they do? They pointed people to the Messiah himself, the one on whom all of human history pivots and rests. There is no question anymore as to who the Messiah is. It's not a secret anymore. There are those who follow the, the Jewish faith, and they say, well, we, we believe a Messiah is coming, but we don't know who he is. No, we know who he is. Jesus Christ proved it hundreds of times, fulfilling hundreds of prophecies from the Jewish Bible. It is most definitely him. And we know most of all because Jesus Christ came out of the grave on the third day. It is the most provable fact of ancient history that Jesus Christ came out of the grave, that the tomb is empty, that he is exactly who he said he is, that he is alive now, that he is God, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. When Herod was brought face to face with some of these truths, his response was, how do I find a way out? I don't wanna deal with this. But he couldn't escape. He ignored the reality of Jesus, but that didn't help him. Ignoring the truth just pushed him further and further away from the very person who wanted to rescue him from death. And instead he said, no, I choose death instead of the life that you're offering me. Herod had this opportunity to discover the truth, have Jesus save him, forgive him, change his life. But instead of seeking, he shut his heart, stopped up his ears, busied himself with other things, ignored the truth. If you aren't sure who Jesus is, we just invite you the way the Lord invites you to respond to this offer of life that he's given you. It will require you to turn from sin. It will require you to actually speak to God, invite him into your heart and life. You see, Herod had these conversations with other people and they had these secondhand conversations. Who do you think? Well, I heard this and I heard that. He could have spoken to Jesus himself, but he wouldn't. One commentator wrote, who Jesus really is cannot be discovered through secondhand reports or rumors. You can't become a Christian secondhand. I've heard it said, there's no such thing as a spiritual grandchild. God has no grandchildren, just children. You're going to have to answer the question in your own heart, who is Jesus and what am I going to do about that? But you can know him today because we are promised by Jesus himself, if you seek the Lord, you will find him. If you are a Christian here today, that means you know who Jesus is and you're learning more and more day by day, year by year. It's good to be reminded the truth about our king. It's good to be reminded of his grace, his unfolding plan, the truth of his claims, the truth of his promises to us. On top of that, there are some secondary applications that I'd like us to tuck into our hearts before we go. One is that there are people who are gonna be near you, around you, close to you, who may not understand who Jesus is. It is our privilege not only to try to introduce Jesus to them, but to represent Jesus to them. To say, hey, you've heard things about Jesus. You have these ideas. You're not quite right. Let me tell you the truth 
of who Jesus is. Let me tell you the truth of his power in a life by demonstrating his resurrection power in the way that I behave. Another important principle for us is that our goal as servants is to broadcast Jesus, direct people to Jesus, glorify Jesus. You know, this whole scene happens not because Jesus specifically did something. We're told this happens because he sent the 12 out. They went healing and preaching and and representing Jesus. And as a result of that, everybody was talking about Jesus. Herod wasn't talking about Bartholomew or Peter or Thomas. He was talking about the Lord himself. And Bartholomew didn't say, why didn't Herod talk about me? Why didn't Herod talk about how important I am? They didn't think that. They were just wanting to glorify the Lord. And so we should not be upset as servants of Jesus. We should not be disappointed or disaffected if we are not acknowledged or if people aren't impressed with us. It's better to have the affectionate attention of God himself who delights in us. The more we understand who Jesus is, the more we are able to understand who we are understand our value in his eyes, our place in his plan, the spiritual wealth and privilege and authority we have because we belong to this king. We know that we don't need to be perplexed in this life, confused by difficulties. We don't need to find a way out. We are on our way in, into the kingdom of God forever where we will rule and reign alongside Jesus Christ, the true king almighty who was and is and is to come.